Welcome to the latest edition of the Army Talk Spotlight Series, where we discuss the technologies, the companies, and the people that we believe are shaping the evolution of retail. We are joined today by Deborah Leff, Global Leader and Industry CTO for Data Science AI at IBM for Retail and CPG. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, wow, what a few weeks. I think we first, I, I was looking back at my notes, I think we first started talking to each other, that must have been around the 4th of March, I'd say. I think if memory serves, you guys were already in quarantine. So what's the last few weeks been like for you? Well, they've been an adjustment, to say the least. Um, we entered quarantine very early because my daughter had um, the a student in her school was actually tested after her father tested positive. So they immediately shut the school down and put all the kids in quarantine. And it was, I have to just say though, the transition, because this hit us so early, the transition of the school from in-class learning to distance learning happened within just a few days. And you just really, you're just amazed to see these kids on Zoom classes with the entire class and the teacher active engage and as of right now they don't expect to open school before the end of april there's a question mark as to whether or not it will open the school year again at all and it's remarkable to just see everyone settling in right so if i'm not traveling which i was almost all of the time i would be working from home so this has just been an extended work from home and i think for a lot of people that have worked from home it almost feels a little bit there's some similarities but um the adjustment's been pretty, pretty great. Wow. I think uh, the, the goal is to get through this time period still loving all of the people we live with. Yeah, well, that's wild. We'll get, to, we'll get to IBM too and AI for sure. But I'm curious, and I know Anne is too, because we've been talking about it a lot. But what has that adjustment been like with the kids going to school at home? So it sounds like it happened really fast for you guys. I mean, was it how? What was that like from the parents' side of everything? Well, I think because now it's it's a very widely um, it, the impact is very widely mm-hmm. felt, right? With entire school districts being shut down, this was the very first shutdown that we found out from a text message from the bus driver saying, "I'm not coming. School's been canceled." There was a lot of just confusion and uncertainty, and oh my, like it was before really the. I mean, it was only the second case in New York. Now there's over twenty thousand, yeah. so it was. It was. It just hit us out of left field. Um, I think those first few days were very angst-ridden, and then as we saw the additional cases coming to light through the school, I think now there's like 40 or 50 related to the school. We got to see firsthand how quickly this spreads and how important it is it is to stay home and not, you know, and not conjugate with other people. Okay, that's the wrong word. <laughs> you don't want to conjugate those <laughs> verbs with other people. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome okay maybe i do need to get outside <laughs> i don't even know what that means either anymore i used to know what conjugating a verb was no, right. oh that's awesome that's awesome well hey let's that's a good let's shift gears that's probably a good segue because i imagine ai is one thing that can definitely help with conjugation in the world in some way shape or form but but uh, your your title is awesome. I mean, your title is really interesting. So like, like I said at the opening, the CTO for data science and AI for IBM uh, in terms of retail and CPG. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what does that role actually mean? And specifically, 
How did you get into that position? I'm curious, you know, first and foremost, what is your background that led you ultimately to that role? So, um, okay, so that was a couple questions wrapped in there. So I'll do my best to get them all, but remind me in in case I skip over. Um, So actually, I've spent my almost most of my career actually in um, in sales, um, supporting a large global team, and really focused on sales execution. Now the if you would have asked me growing up if I would ever be in sales, I would have said no way. And I think my interpretation or impression of what a salesperson was was very much in line with a used car salesman who is just pushing a product on someone trying to get a deal closed. And uh, I started out my career in marketing and I had a very, very specific business challenge um, around responding to RFPs. Um, I was in the financial services world and a lot of our business in institutional asset management was driven by these things. And it was very hard. It was very challenging to just have, there was no knowledge base that you could, no natural language processing. And we were trying to figure out a way to automate it and alleviate the burden of our, um, of my marketing team. And we came across a product that looked on paper like it did exactly what we needed. It builds a knowledge base. It uses natural language understanding to parse questions and help us find and manage and maintain a a body of of answers. And we ended up purchasing it. And I was a beta tester for um, one of their future releases, and I ended up going to work for them. And at the time, the way I rationalized this in my head was this was such a hard job for my team and I. And we had a solution that actually made life so much better. And I really just almost rationalized it as I'm, I'm going, I'm going to try and go help people with this solution and see if I could make their work, work life a little bit better. And I have in my whole career just stayed true to that, just always represented products that I thought made the world a better place for someone in some way. And by doing that, with that orientation, you're really listening and trying to understand where are they, what are they trying to do, help them learn from others who will have the same challenges as they do. And as IBM commercialized Watson and really leaned into our investments in data science and machine learning and AI, uh, we formed a team internally um, uh, called the Data Science and AI Elite Team. And this is a team of practitioners. There's actually been some wonderful press around this team. But to support the customers that we serve in their journey to becoming proficient in AI and getting to AI at scale, um, we hired a team of data scientists that are we essentially lend out to our customers to engage with them to help them not just evaluate technology, but to really... Um, think through the way that they are applying machine learning to optimize their businesses. And when that team was looking for um, industry specialists, um, the head of that team, a gentleman named Seth Dobrin, uh, reached out to recruit me to that role. And my first thought was, uh, CTO, I'm not a CTO. That's not the job for me. Uh, I I don't think I'm, I'm technically proficient enough. And Seth was, it was like, no, Deborah, you you are. You know your stuff, and the way you understand solutions and connect people to problem solve using technology is exactly what we need in this role. And I just took that leap of faith and uh, and and made the move. And I've held the position now for about a year. It's probably one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. I absolutely love it. 
And it's really on the emerging forefront of just studying and understanding how retail and consumer companies are leveraging AI and all of the challenges they they have trying to get to AI at scale and move beyond experimentation um, and actually get meaningful business results. And Deborah, how are you applying that specifically or those solutions um, specifically to the retail industry? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> As a matter of fact. So for what's amazing about machine learning and artificial intelligence is that to me, it's very akin to going to a supermarket. You have all of these raw ingredients and you could make pretty much anything you can think of. Machine learning and AI can pretty much do anything that you can think of. It's a matter of articulating the business problem that you're looking to solve and the outcome that you want to drive and then working backwards to understand what data what would you need and how would that how would that science come together to inform a better decision or or drive an experience so there are some common uh, I mean we see some common themes if you will um, that really span across um, all areas of retail everything from uh, the way you inform decisions about purchasing and merchandising to how you communicate with your customers in a more personalized way, optimizing supply chain, staffing, store operations. I mean, it, it really touches every, every possible area. Are there any specific examples, Deborah, that you can go into of either um, clients that your team has worked with or things that, that really stand out for you as you're kind of advocating for uh, AI and machine learning um, becoming more a part of the retail industry? So, yes, and I, I'm more than happy to walk through some examples. Before I do, I want to talk about the way to think about, about AI. And for me, this breaks down into rethinking the way we think about innovation. So one of the mistakes that I see that companies make and even our own team sometimes, is that we start, we want to talk about use cases. We want to talk about examples. And the, the challenges that I see or the pitfall that I see is that sometimes a company might say, oh, that sounds like a good example. We should try that. But you're talking about very precious investment dollars that need to be guided to the most important things to experiment on that would be the most meaningful for your organization, not necessarily for someone else did that sounds interesting. And so I find that really two camps. So the first is you have to be thinking about getting to AI at scale. Because if you're thinking about let's do an experiment, this is like one of those careful what you wish for. Because if you want to do an experiment successfully and you're successful at the experiment, have you really moved the needle? And it's important to think through an experiment as a first step into getting to AI at scale for something that's meaningful and important for the business. So I'll give you an example. Um, sometimes our, our projects are selected by a data science team or an IT team or an innovation team. And sometimes they don't even include the line of business leader and the subject matter experts. And we see that sometimes that's because, you know, someone had a good idea and they're excited and they want to run with it. And then after the fact, they go present to the business and the business is well, no, I, I've been doing this for 20 years and I know better. Like that sure. <laughs> doesn't seem right to me. Right? And it becomes like, 
what's this black box magic you think you're doing mm -hmm. and trying to tell me something that doesn't seem right to me? So they don't trust the science, especially if they're not involved. Mm -hmm. Or it's possible to fix the wrong problem or fix the right problem, but in the wrong way. And that we cannot, not including subject matter expertise is such a mistake because our line of business leaders and our subject matter experts have this deep domain expertise. They're on the front lines with the challenges and the problems, and they are the best people to contribute to these projects. And also they then understand, you know, they get educated on how the science is actually working. So I have so much more faith and, and, and especially if we can explain what's happening, which is a, a key um, area for IBM on trust and explainability of models. Um, but so many business leaders, I mean, this is hard stuff, right? Like data science and machine learning are not simple concepts. And the executives that we see are most successful are the ones that take the time to actually learn the baseline of what these things are. And if you, if you look at even the way I explained myself on LinkedIn, demystifying AI is not hard. You just, it needs to be a step that you include. Mm -hmm. And in the way we we look at projects and we talk to companies about the projects they could and should be doing, it always starts by bringing in the business leaders and really just level setting what AI is, what machine learning is, um, what it can do, what others are doing with it, and just re just demystifying these terms so that when you say something like feature engineering, someone isn't like glossed over and like, oh God, I don't know what that is. And you know, it feels uncomfortable to be out of that comfort zone of, of even understanding what people are talking How, about. Let's step back up. I think that's a great point. Like I want to bring that flush out even more. Like, and you even alluded to it. Like you, like you look at your background and even as you describe, it's not it's not super technical in any way, shape, or form. So like, how do you how do you cross that chasm? Because it is a little black boxy. So like, you know, as you're working with a client or a customer, like how do you how do you bridge that? I mean, that seems really challenging to say. Okay, hey, put your trust in this thing that you know, ninety five percent probability you're not going to be able to understand. How do you get people to go along on that journey with you? What are like tactical things that you're seeing work as you try to actually do, as you say, which is demystify the whole concept? So first of all, I'm going to tell you that, um, that if anyone works in technology, it's very important to never say the words, I'm not technical. Right. And that was uh, a lesson that I learned a long time ago. In fact, our general manager, Rob Thomas, had held like a town hall and he was like, guys, you work for a technology company. I never want to hear anyone say I'm not technical. So for me, my own personal, I work in technology. I need to understand how this stuff works, even though I'm not a practitioner. I am a woman in AI and I don't code AI. I'm, I, I, I don't code and I don't, I don't make models, but I understand them from a practical perspective, how they work, what they can do. And I read a tremendous amount. And to me, I feel like that's on me. If I want to be good at my job, I'm constantly reading what I need to know in order to be effective at, at what I'm doing. So I think that, you know, bridging that gap is actually not that hard. And, and I, I coach a lot of young women who are on their own career path. And I just tell them, so important to take your education into your own hands. And a really interesting article from Harvard Business Review came out, like I want to say like two years ago, in like January, two years ago. And it said that AI will not replace managers, but managers that use AI will replace those that don't. And I tell business leaders, whatever you look after, whether it's supply chain or it's inventory management or it's forecasting, just go ahead and Google 
what you do and the words use cases of AI and, and data science, and you will get a wealth of information. I am a Google scholar. I Google everything, um, but it's all there and people can absolutely self-educate so that it doesn't feel like it's foreign and it, you, know, you don't understand it and so therefore you have to leave it to someone else. Very important to participate in it. So here's the thing about data science, the way that I break it down. First of all, we have to rethink innovation. We have been so conditioned over time to think about innovation in terms of we have a system, it's version 10.5, and we're going to make some enhancements to go to 10.6, and who has ideas grounded in what we have that could be deliverable in like two quarters. That's how we've been thinking about innovation for a very long time, and we need to break through that and actually not talk about how to fix something and make it better, but take a step back and talk about if we were building something from scratch right now, how would we do that? And often I use an example of a shopping cart at a grocery store, which was patented in like the 1930s and has barely changed since then, right? It's the same thing. It's got wheels, you know, now has a basket, has a child lock. Great. That's been the major enhancements, you know, over time. But if you were designing that today, how would you design that? Well, hmm. I might, I might have it sync with my shopping list on my phone so it can give me ways like directions around the store. I might have it ring up my purchases as I put items in my basket so that you know, I don't have to actually check out at all. It's already there. I might, um, I, I might uh, know who I am because I've scanned in. Maybe I forgot something on my list and it reminds me, Deborah, you don't have eggs on your list. Are you sure you don't need them? you would design it completely differently because you would think about it very, very differently. So I would say the first step in AI is actually talk about the things that get in your way from achieving the strategic business objectives that you're responsible for supporting. And by starting with the company objectives, the strategic things, now obviously we're living in, you know, the whole world has been upended for all of us. And this you know, this, the context of this conversation from four weeks ago to today to what it will be like in another four weeks is clearly in flux. But what I would have said is, what are your strategic objectives for this calendar year? Let's meet with the line of business leaders and talk about what stands in their way. What, how do we either accelerate them attaining their goals or, or how do we look to break through the things that impede their being able to deliver on those goals and talk about the outcomes to drive and then back into what are the ML initiatives? What can our data, the insights from our data tell us to help us make better decisions or to drive better customer experiences? This is retail. What we can do with data is make this experience so much more personal. And we are training customers everywhere to expect that level of, of personalization. The digital leaders are doing that for everyone. And even just talking about the experiences you want to drive, if you start with the outcome, you then back into what are then the right um, initiatives to, to focus on. So let me, that's interesting to me because, so if I extrapolate that further, I think part of what that tells me too is, okay, so one, we've got to be responsible for educating ourselves. We should never use kind of, we're not technical as an excuse, which I think Anne and I would 100% agree with. And then the point that we also always talk about on the show, you know, around innovation and making sure you're using fresh from the ground up thinking wherever possible and in whatever situations. Then as part, I'm curious too, as, as part of that journey, and especially I think as we probably double click into the current state of the environment, you know, as part of that journey, then 
Is it also outlining what are the goals and objectives that you're trying to accomplish through that reimagination? And then by clearly outlining that, this is my guessing here, there's more asking you if this is true, by outlining that clearly and then evaluating it step by step, you can get a confidence in what a kind of the black boxy nature, so to speak, of what you're trying to incorporate is actually working and you're kind of holding hands with it together over time. Is, am I thinking about that approach the right way? Is, is there something I'm missing? No, so, so you are thinking about it in the right way. Um, sometimes you could come up with some very tactical things that, that support an objective. So let's, I'll use for an example, like a marketing campaign that a retailer. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many sure. times have I gotten an email that something is on sale and the picture in the email is something I might like and I click on it and find out it's not available in my size, right? Like th- th- that's a frustrating experience that if it wasn't my size, I might've just purchased it on the mo- you know, on the spot and that little micro moment that they created, which is very effective. But what if they could match up their loyalty with my own personal purchase history with inventory so that the way they customize email communications out to their potential shoppers have a much higher conversion rate because now they're showing me things in the price range I usually buy, in the size that I always buy, and in a style that's similar to things that I have without being the same to things that I have. Think about how much more effective that could be. And that's, that's literally an experiment you can start with that from an experimentation perspective with a small subset of data. You'll probably do that project in a couple of weeks, right? And be fully deployed with something like that also within weeks. Like you experiment maybe in two to four, you're fully deployed in, in six to eight, including A-B testing to see, you know, what's the most effective, um, you know, what's the driving your best response rates, right? Small, doesn't have to be, you know, complete overhaul. But these ideas, if you can say, the challenge we have is our, we, we think we can do better if we can drive up our conversion rates. You start with the end, and then, you, and then it's, it's, it, there's so much creativity within the world of machine learning and the way you're mining your data and the things that you can do with it. I always say that we can teach the machines to do a lot of things, but we're not going to cre- teach them to have the creative ideas that actually create the competitive advantage for us. And that's where the humans are so important to this process. How does that work then? Are you, are people coming to you? We'll use retailers as an example. Um, are they coming to you at that point saying, here's the problem that I need to solve? Can I apply AI and machine learning to this problem? Or what does that process kind of look like? How are you getting them to sort of kind of make those connections? Okay. So let me tell you how that's been unfolding over time because once machine learning and AI initiatives started, we started hitting the hype cycle. Uh, we started getting phone calls that said, hi, I want to talk to you about AI. And I was like, awesome. What do you want to talk about? They're like, boss says we need to do AI. Can we do AI? (laughs) That's like an impossible thing. And I, I mean, I hate to say that people have been investing in technology for technology's sake, but I've definitely seen my fair share of that. And I know others have as well. There was an, now on the other end of that spectrum, we've seen just people just kind of just start experimenting. And I can tell you that when you start a project as an experiment, it will end as an experiment and it won't have a whole lot of business value. I've seen people be a little bit timid. Gee, we're not sure this, like we don't want to invest in anything too big and too strategic. Let's do this little small experiment and then it succeeds and it's not really very valuable and it feels very ho-hum. Or sometimes there, there's no signal in the noise. You actually have a great idea 
but find that the data isn't very meaningful. So it's time to move on to the next one. That doesn't mean data science failed. It just means that the data wasn't there, wasn't meaningful enough to actually invest in it further, which is a really good thing. Um, Harvard Business Review did an article this past summer that said only 8% of companies are at AI at scale. Only 8%. And we have been investing so much in data science and AI initiatives across companies everywhere. Com companies everywhere have been investing. And the article talks about how companies have really been just kind of stuck in experimentation and maybe have done like some key things in like a specific business department. We see that all of the time. And the key to changing that is to thinking about data science more strategically. I read an article not that long ago about Stitch Fix, which is a company I absolutely admire. What They are a data science, data-driven led company that happens to be in the world of fashion. And I think most companies in the next five, every company will be a data company, which is why all of us will be technical, but every company will rely on data. But the way they have elevated the data science team as part of the executive leadership team is a very important cultural change to making data and data science much more important to the, forgive the pun, but the fabric of the company. That when you think of data science as a strategic element, then you make the right level of investments. And one of the biggest challenges, one of the reasons why companies cannot necessarily make the leap from experimentation into true operationalization is because we have changed the rules on how applications work, right? We used to program millions and millions of lines of code to have these very rigid monolithic systems, but now we have modern technologies around microservices, which for those that are not technical, that are trying to become technical, mm -hmm. think of like a big Jenga tower. Rather than it be just like solid code, we now have a Jenga tower. We have a little piece with a functionality. We can take it out and we can put a different piece in. It just means that we've broken down all of the capabilities that come together to make an application and we've, we've encapsulated them into building blocks. So it makes swapping pieces of it and, and making advances to pieces of it something that you can do very fluidly, very real time. It's why, do you remember we used to update Microsoft Office like once every 18 months because it was a big, giant, monolithic thing that- No, I try to forget that, actually. <laughs> I, forget, I try to forget that as much as possible. You could only do that in phases. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, your Uber and Lyft apps are like, you know, they over, they just update overnight. Update all the time, yeah. That's that's a segment we're going to have to cut up because I, I absolutely, and I'm going to steal this, by the way, so I'm just going to tell you that in advance. And my, this might end up in my writing, but because I, I was just literally, I, I think writing about this concept and something I can't even remember if I published it or not, but I love what you said about starting an experiment, starting something as an experiment ends as an experiment. And you're right, because it has to be part of a broader defined strategic process. Even great scientists have a process to their experimentation. So to that point, let's end on this and then we'll do, we'll do how millennial are you? And I want to talk about this on two fronts. I want to talk about where the industry was before and where it is now headed given everything that's been happening in the last few weeks. But scale of one to 10, from your expert opinion, where is retail, 10 being high, where is retail on the AI adoption curve if you were to grade it out relative to other industries that you encounter or that you're familiar with? 
So I, I hate to grade on a one to 10, but I, okay. I, I'd say it's in its adolescence, right? In it's adolescence. Okay. Where is it yeah. on, its, on, its, uh, on its growth maturity? Yeah. So the, I, there's a lot of, so the good news is a good way to put a it. lot of, of room for opportunity. And I think we are seeing, you know, be, you know, like if you look at my daughter's school that went from never supporting distance learning, right? right suddenly that's all they do is distance learning. We, when we look back on this time period, we are going to talk about how this period of quarantine and global pandemic forced so much of digital transformation because it made it necessary. Workers in retail that have never worked remote before are working remote now. Investments in an online presence and all of the ways we can optimize the online channels you know, that hasn't been, you know, if, if 85% of retail is still coming from brick and mortar, mm-hmm. those weren't the highest priorities for investment, but now it's all we have. Mm-hmm. You know, we've invested in buy online, pick up in store, uh, that's shifting to curbside. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, we are going to look back and say, I think we're going to look back and say that not only was this a key driver in digital transformation, but it was a key driver into getting to AI at scale. Mm-hmm because we will come out on the other side of this. This is not going to be forever. This is going to pass. Mm-hmm. It is going to leave an altered universe for all of us. It's absolutely going to change uh, the lives of many. And my heart breaks for all of the retail associates that, that have been furloughed through all of this time period. This is going to create tremendous stresses on our social economic uh, pictures, but there will be a time that we come out of this. And part of that recovery those that embrace data and the insights from data and what machine learning can do are going to see, they're going to put their data to work and they're going to accelerate the recovery. And that is going to make getting to AI at scale, not a wish list. It's going to be part of their survival. And those are the conversations we're actually already having right now. How are we going to know which stores to bring back online first? How are we going to make the right decisions about staffing because we have to balance the financial needs of the corporation and the customer experience to bring them back. How are we going to restart all of those things? And at the same time, as people are concerned about health and and interacting with others, how are we going to make the necessary investments into, I mean, listen, I can tell you recommendation engines, there's a wide, you know, everyone has one, but their effectiveness is a huge, huge gap into a a very effective one that takes many different parameters together versus something very rudimentary. This will be part of the recovery is Mm -hmm. making sure that we are investing in those things. And you you and I were talking earlier about, you know, using conversational AI, conversational commerce. Like these are things that, you know, IBM is not just investing in, but things that we're, we're actually making available to our customers at no charge for a period of time because they are so hurting right now and dealing with an influx of questions from their employees and an influx of questions from their customers. Now is a time where just like, you know, uh, logic-driven automated FAQ chatbots are just, they're not enough. We need to take that next step into true conversational AI that can actually support these things no matter how they're coming in, whether it's voice or whether it's through text, because there's just not enough call center operators to just handle the needs of society right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a point there too, right? Is like it, th- this is also something that given, I think you're right, it's going to hasten the pace of change around everything digital and all these digital activations are kind of built for this to some degree versus like legacy retail operations. But 
all this can still be done at this time too, right? I mean, like that it, it all it can all be done. People can be working from home. They can be outlining kind of you know what these goals and objectives are, and however they're still having their strategy meetings or leadership meetings. But the actual activation of the work that can still be done during this this time period that we're in, right? So we so I have to tell you there are some some sessions that we do with executives as well as with practitioners and uh, data engineers and data scientists that we typically do in person that are based on design thinking um, principles. And if you would have asked me if that could be done remote, I, I would have said absolutely not. But just like our schools that never supported distance learning, you know what? We've been trying and it's actually working really, really well. It just is a, just a different mindset that it can be done. And that I would say that, you know, a lot of our Zoom and WebEx calls, a lot of us, you know, we just keep the video camera off. I will tell you that what we learn most from the school experience is that it's very important that video cameras are on and not everyone is muted because it's very easy to multitask when you're on mute. And so there are some guiding principles that you can put into in place that actually make this extremely, I mean, it feels like we're in the same room, the three of us, and we're, we're not, we're in, in different locations and it's actually, it, it can be done. And right now, because we have stores that are shut for safety, because we have systems that had to halt, it actually is as soon as a company is ready, because we're very sensitive to the fact that people are really in crisis right now, but there are resources within an organization that actually can do some things remotely to start thinking about what happened, how do we, things that can be done now to help right now, things that we're doing with voice and text to support the influx of calls, and to think about how we are prepared for when things can start coming back online. How are we going to handle the excess inventory? How are like there, there's, you know, bring the supply chain back up. There's going to be a lot of new decisions that we've never had to make before that people are going to have to make and leveraging data and being supported to make the best possible decisions is going to be very important. Yeah. I applaud you guys for that approach. I mean, that makes a lot of sense in terms of what you're, you're outlining too, in terms of, Hey, let's, like you were saying, conversational commerce, let's use that as a tool to you know, help people answer all the questions and inquiries that are coming in. Let's not worry about the cost right now. Let's just get the implementations, the integrations done. Let's get the just easy blocking and tackling done. We can deal with all that later. But over this time period, we can learn what works and what doesn't. I think that, I think that makes a ton of sense. All right, Anne, are you ready? I think, I think this is going to be fun. I can't wait to do this. Uh, are you ready to play, Deborah? Are you ready to play How Millennial Are You? <laughs> Yeah, let's play. How right. are you? <laughs> for those listening, Deborah has no idea what's coming. So this is gonna right. be great. All right, Anne, go for it. Okay, Deborah. So the first question, let's take this during um, a more uh, normal time, not right now, but <laughs> normally when when you're at uh, we'll say the grocery store in this case, and you're going to check out, are you using mobile payment or are you paying with a credit card or cash? Oh, Anne, you assume I go to a store. That's so cute. <laughs> Deborah, little do you know, that's also an answer. So, that could be. Uh, I, so as a uh, an executive at IBM, who I would say work full time, but it's almost like two full time jobs at times. Um, and being a mom running a household, I can tell you that I was a very early adopter of uh, Instacart and Amazon Fresh and. Um, my first two weeks of quarantine, I can tell you, 
I had almost no impact because my life is already set up for delivery. <laughs> so, um, right. I can tell you now, uh, I'm right now I'm, I'm, I'm re temporarily relocated, uh, to Atlanta, Georgia. And these systems actually just read yesterday, Instacart is adding about 300,000 employees to help with the demand, um, for in home, but it has not been available to me. So we've been trekking out to the grocery store. Mm. I can tell you mobile payment, um, Apple Pay has been really, really important because especially right now, it minimizes any um, touching that needs to happen. So right, this is a time where people do not want to be touching keypads. I can tell you there's a couple grocery stores here that won't accept Apple Pay. I very quickly learned which ones do so that I can go there and feel safer right now in this moment. Um, again, I think the lessons that we learned through this time period are going to help make um, some decisions in the future. But yeah, um, I'm all about convenience. So as these stores figure out how to um, impact my customer experience, just know I need things to be really convenient. Right. No, that I think you're you're proving all of the use cases that we talk about all the time, Chris and I. It's like you you make decisions based on who has the more convenient form of payment, especially when you have kids with you too, and you're you know trying to figure out how you get in and out of that that store as quickly and as in this case as safely as possible. Yeah, I think we just need to get like a hundred germaphobes in the room, like me. Like, <laughs> where is the world going to be in five years? And oh man, there is some there's. There's some positive that would come out of that, but Chris, I don't know if I'm right. I mean, Devin literally just said everything I've been saying. <laughs> right. <laughs> like that touching screen. So uh, well, I can tell you though, that I actually um I needed to I needed to get some things at Target the other day. It was the first time I had ever done self-checkout. Oh and, yeah. And and they they on purpose have closed down the cashier stations to keep distance oh. between uh their employees and their shoppers. And I have to tell you, it was it was, it was actually very easy. I, I, yeah. I, I was very surprised. It was, I've never tried it before, but if I'm actually going to go, I just let somebody do it, but I have to say it worked out really well. Yeah. I think that's really come a long way too. Yeah. I'm almost, I almost fully go through that. If my basket is small enough, that's only, oh, no, I went with like, but now I would probably, yeah, I'm with you. I hear you. I hear you. Well, you're going to kill this next question. Oh my God. Oh no. <laughs> You might have the, the record answer here. Right. So in a, in a traditional week, um, when you're back at home in New York, how many times a week would you order food or drinks? And I can, I think we can include grocery items in this one too. Uh, sure. How many times would you order that from an app? <laughs> okay. It, me personally are in my household. So uh, <laughs> either one, either one. So I would say in a week, so I typically do groceries before the weekend and I have a couple of different uh, options. So there's like Instacart, but there's a wonderful uh, like farm uh, farm stand that will deliver. And I, I email them the list and that shows up at the door. Uh, so I would say Fridays is like my, all of my food deliveries. Usually once in the week we'll do an Uber Eats for dinner. And I can tell you that at quarantine, uh, my daughter did almost daily pliables in the morning, which I just said, you're in quarantine. And if that makes you happy, you know, I, I, I say, okay. Uh, but that's not a normal occurrence. Wait, what did she, wait, what did she do? What was it? Oh, have you not been on the pliable trend? I don't, I don't know what that is. Oh my God. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling my card up. I'm not millennial. What is pliable? And do you know what this is? 
I've heard of it, but I've not, I don't think we have it in Minneapolis. What is this? I don't know what this is. Please enlighten the OmniTalk listeners and actually the OmniTalk host. What is a pliable? Okay, so a pliable, in my mind, the, here's my best description. It's sorbet disguised as a health food or it's health ah. food disguised as sorbet. I'm really not sure which one it is, but okay. it's essentially, you, uh, it could be from a range of ingredients. It could be like a green goddess, so to speak, that's then made into a slushy, um, okay. or it could be chia seeds or berries, but it essentially is a breakfast slushy type of okay. bowl that then has toppings that could be anything from fruits and berries to granola to Nutella. I mean, but it's a Charlton Heston movie in the seventies brought to life. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Yeah. That's right. Okay. I got it. Whole food disguised as a sorbet or sorbet wow. as a, I don't know which one it is, but it's that's uh, like Gen. That's like Gen Z, Deborah. Oh my yeah, God. it's you'll see ads for it on your Instagram. Okay. I think I'm more Gen Z than I am millennial. That's going to be our next question. Have you had a pliable? All right. Well, hang on. <laughs> Let me just tell you how Gen Z I am because when we started quarantine, like obviously to connect with my daughter, I needed to create a TikTok account, and one of my TikTok uh, obviously. Accounts, had yeah. like over 40,000 views, much to her dismay. So <laughs> 40,000. Okay. Well, you actually just segued into the next question and you got to hit it. Go for it. Right. Okay. Deborah, if you were only to use one social app, which one would it be? And why would you choose that app? <laughs> sounds like, sounds like one is growing in importance. Okay. I'm going to tell you it would be TikTok. Oh, God. You're the first person to say that ever in the history of Amitak. Okay, well, wow. I have to tell you why. And for if yes. you are quarantined and listening to this, I, I do not work for TikTok. I do not. There is, I just want to make sure you all know I have no vested interest in this. Um, but let me tell you, it is the time suck of all time sucks. It is so entertaining to just see these like few second you know, uh, less than a minute, like 20 second videos. And there are people just doing silly things, lip syncing, or uh, there's like this, uh, they do things where uh, you, you start completely unmade up and then boom, and now you're all made up. And it's honestly, I, you, you start watching it at eight o'clock at night and before you know it's 11, you're like, oh my God, I have to turn the lights out. So only because right now, we are dealing with this, you know, crazy time. It's such a good diversion from reality right. that if you need an escape, it's actually a fun little escape. Otherwise, I would have said um, probably Instagram. But right now, just cheer for the entertainment factor. Uh, given what's going on in the world, I'm going to have to say TikTok. It's so addictive. I would argue that there are too many people who are accessing that platform right now. <laughs> 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 it yeah. used to be a more like refined group of people who had some specific talents or were dancing or singing. And now I feel like and anything's game. We have anyone on that platform yeah. right now, but, but it's, I, mean, the photo- I love photography. The photography yes. are amazing. Um, the artists that are on there are amazing. And then there are some like just silly things that I just find entertaining, but yeah. What the hell? Did, what the hell did you post that got forty thousand views? I, I'm dying to know. Like, I have to ask. I feel like you have to go find me on TikTok. Uh, I'm gonna have to. I might. I might pull it up right now and put it on the video screen here. But I, that's a little uh, boost. What's so the taste here? What do we got? Was, uh, actually, someone in um, someone in uh, my daughter's school 
uh, did a, it's called put a finger down if, and it's like 10 things. And it's like, put a finger down if you're currently in quarantine, you know, put a finger down. So it just goes through these 10 things and someone in her class made it. And my daughter got like 800 views and she's like, mom, you should try this. And it got like over 40,000. And I, I don't I don't, I don't know. And you know, I don't feel TikTok famous. I don't feel like, I don't feel any different. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. Not yet anyway. Not yet. <laughs> Until you go check the mentions or whatever, the, or, the, or the likes or whatever the views. But, wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right. I, and I think she kind of crushed that one. Yeah, yeah the, for sure. The best collective <laughs> answers we've ever had to that segment. So yeah, congratulations, Deborah. Far off the charts on Millennial, probably very even Gen Z. But, um, but Deborah, that was awesome. That was amazing. A lot of fun at the end, which it always is, which is why we do that. Um, if people are, if people found this conversation pretty engaging and they want to learn more about AI, want to get in touch with you, like what's the best way for people to do that? Yeah. So the best way for me is definitely LinkedIn. Uh, I really love to connect with people on business on, on LinkedIn. It's a great way to keep in touch with each other. Um, IBM is really doing some amazing things. There are things that, uh, I, I, I love working for this company because of the way that they are truly helping people on their journey to get to AI. And I cannot tell you how much I personally love being a part of that journey and supporting my clients in retail and consumer products. So if you just want to connect, if you just want to ask some questions, if you just want to pick my brain, all of that um, is fair game. I'd be more than happy to continue any of these conversations. That's awesome. Kudos to you for that too. We love when it's LinkedIn and not a web page too, because it just makes it yeah. much more personal and as your to your credit, so much more millennial and Gen Z. So awesome. Well, hey, thanks so much for being on our show again to all our loyal listeners out there. This has been Deborah Lepp, global leader, industry CTO for data science and AI at IBM Retail and CPG. On behalf of Deborah, on behalf of Anne, please, now more than ever, as always, be careful out there.